the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. A lot of us, I think, are, are maybe painfully aware of the growing so-called generation gap. Now, this this notion of a gap between the generations in terms of values and ethics and understanding and all of that, it really kind of first came into being, at least in terms of, of um, a conversation piece, back in the 60s and, and 70s. And uh, I guess that folks of that time, if they had had a time machine to be able to travel forward to today would think, wow, we had it easy compared to you all. (laughs) Today, that gap seems to be ever widening. And yet, in the modern workplace, it's not unusual to find two, three, sometimes even four generations all working together. But are they really collaborating together or simply colliding How can we foster not only better understanding, but ultimately create a work environment, a team environment, and this applies to ministry as well, that would help foster the notion that everybody brings value to the table. It's just different types of value. Let's talk about it. Joining me now is best-selling author Dr. Tim Elmore. His most recent book is called A New Kind of Diversity, Making the Different Generations on Your Team a Competitive Advantage, and newly released by Maxwell Leadership. You're certainly familiar with John Maxwell. I've been a guest on this program many, many times down through the years. And Dr. Elmore, a delight to have you with us. Thank you, Craig. Great to be with you, too. You know, oftentimes this notion of uh, generation gaps uh, typically seems to be met with the booze and (laughs) sour faces and the notion that, wait a minute, no, 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 you're mixing metaphors. These two groups are always going to clash. Forget about the collaborate. Are you kidding me? Let's keep one group at one end of the building and keep the other group at the (laughs) other end of the building and never the twain shall meet. But your new book, your new book, argues to just the opposite, that in fact, coming together, bringing these two or multiple groups together um, can can actually become an asset to an organization as opposed to a liability. I'm fascinated. Tell me more. Well, I, I really mean it when I say that. I think the typical manager would often say, well, our goal is to tolerate each other. Maybe you wouldn't say that, but, you know, the feeling we got to put up with these young whippersnappers or those old dinosaurs. But I actually believe just like ethnic diversity or gender diversity broadens our perspective, you've got a Gen Zer coming in right out of college. You have a millennial that's 33. You've got a Gen Xer that's 48 and a boomer that's 62. All of them are going to have different perspectives. And if we add the value, we're going to find that our office is full of of modern elders and young geniuses. And um, if we would listen, not just preach at each other, it, it would be amazing. And, and what I try to cite in the book is story after story after story of how organizations and teams have benefited from 
the connection, building a bridge rather than a wall. And Craig, quite frankly, I think we can in our brains to build walls when we see people that are just different than we are. Now help me understand, because I can imagine what some are thinking right now. Yeah, I kind of get what you guys are saying. But, you know, at the end of the day, there seems to be very strong opinions formed at sort of both ends of the continuum. Uh, the more seasoned veterans look at the younger generation and say, ah, you know what? They don't know anything. They're just a bunch yeah, of, you yeah. know, up and comer hot shots that are trying to climb the, climb the corporate ladder with a, the least amount of work as possible. They don't have any reference points they don't understand yeah, yeah. and then you've got the opposite that says yeah these old guys they know everything but everything that they know is just ancient history so it's yeah. exactly so there, there's there's a sense of disdain in both directions but but the oddity as you point out in the book a new kind of diversity that is that both bring extreme value to the table if we just learn how to recognize what that value is. Absolutely. I'll tell you a quick story. In the book, I talk about Tony. Tony was 20 years old when he had a part-time job finishing out college. He worked at a paint store, a major retail brand paint store. And while he was there, Craig, he, he starts a TikTok account, starts taping himself, recording himself, mixing paints together and, you know, creating shades of colors that have never been seen before or whatever. Well, Tony's TikTok account goes viral. He gets 1.7 million followers, 37 million views. Well, suddenly this 20-year-old thinks, wow, this, we could use this for marketing. We could monetize this. You know, there's a million more followers we don't have here. So Tony puts a slide deck together and asks to meet with the executives to kind of pitch the idea. Tony did not get one person interested in listening to him. Didn't get one set of eyeballs to look at the slide deck. Tony did get something he didn't expect. He got fired. Because those older managers were just sure that he was distracting to the customers or be stealing the paint or probably doing this on company time. And Tony proved later he didn't do any of those three things, but he fired him. Now get this, Tony moves to Florida from Ohio, now has over 2 million followers, and he started his own paint store. Now there's probably a lot to that story we don't understand, but one thing I think I understand for sure, had that group of leaders listened, even though they were 57 years old or whatever they were, they might have found a whole new way to do their work better. So I think there's an intuition that the younger generation brings on where culture's going. And there's an insight that clearly my generation has as baby boomers that say, well, let me give you some timeless insights I picked up over the years that you'll need as you grow older. Um, that's what I'm lobbying for. And that's what I think we're missing with this gap that we see that's wider now than ever, I think. And certainly as we see the rapid pace at with technology is developing. I mean, it, yeah. it, it used to be, and I'm going to really date myself here, that you could go 10, 15 years without a big, giant leap yeah. in technology, and then it went from 10 to 15 years to 10 years to 5 years. Now it seems like the lifespan of new technology seems to be rolling out with something brand new every couple of years, if even yeah. that. And so Absolutely. the ability for us to be agile enough, to be responsive enough, and I'm wondering if maybe part of this issue is, at least for the older seasoned vets, is a sense of fear 
because it's happening so fast, they don't get a chance to get comfortable with it. Or as they start to get comfortable, one slice of technology, boom, along comes the next one. What I just learned Facebook. I just learned MySpace. Now, what is this Facebook thing? Now, wait a minute. Instagram or TikTok. Hold on. I'm lost. And so I'm wondering if a big part of this is almost... Uh, how should we say this, Doctor Elmore? O- almost a, a a protective mechanism. We we fear what we don't understand, and yeah. so therefore it's easier for us to just shoot it down, or in the sad case of Tony, eliminate it, as opposed yeah. to saying, "Okay, this might stretch me a little bit, but I want to be open to s- continue to grow and learn." Yeah, I have the very struggle that you're describing. I am 63, but I love Gen Z. I love the millennials. Now, are they different? Absolutely. But here's my here's my observation. The gap, the generation gap we're talking about was around in the 1960s. In fact, John Poppy coined the term with Life Magazine when the Baby boomers were the new kids on the block. But my theory is the gap has gotten wider as the screens in our life went from public to private. Mm. So back in the 60s, um, I remember we had one screener in our house. It was a black and white TV. We all gathered around and watched I Love Lucy. We laughed together. We talked together. We enjoyed it together. Fast forward to today, we've all got our own screen in our hand, and it's a smartphone. And now our daughter, perhaps who's 17, she's on a completely different platform. You know that. We, in fact, we know she's got an Instagram account we have no idea she's got five Finsta accounts, fake Instagram, where she's developing personas and talking to God knows who she's talking to. So I feel like right now we can be in echo chambers more than ever before, and we've got to do the work to come out of those. Here's my uh, one of the analogies I use in the book, Craig. If we hop on a plane and we fly to, let's say, China, we know when we get off that plane, we need to work harder connecting with people because... They probably speak a different language here. They probably have different customs. They probably have different values. Bingo. When I talk to a Generation Z, 20-year-old, different language, different customs, different values. I need to do the work that I would do in another country with that young man or young woman that's in front of me in the office right now. And it's interesting, and I want to dive into this a bit deeper when we come back after the break. There's oftentimes, I think, the the misconception that younger generations, and I speak this from the perspective of a slightly older generation, that younger generations don't care. But is it a matter that they don't care or that they care differently? I mean... To you, you were raised that in a certain work environment, say the office, you wear a coat and tie, you wear a clean pressed shirt, you do that five days a week. What is this casual Fridays about? And then we went from casual Fridays to casual Monday through Fridays, and suddenly that older generation went, oh, well, these kids, they just don't care about their appearance. Or is it that they care differently? We don't share the same exact values, but we still have values. So how do we kind of put that through the filter or or maybe interpret that as we would a foreign language into a language that we can effectively communicate with to not only grow from one another, but ultimately grow our organization, be it a business or a ministry. We're going to explore that dynamic as we continue our conversation with best-selling author Dr. Tim Elmore. The new book is called A New Kind of Diversity, Making the Different Generations on Your Team a Competitive Advantage. A brief time out back with more as Lifeline continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to our conversation. Best-selling author Dr. Tim Elmore with us tonight. His new book called A New Kind of Diversity, Making the Different Generations on Your Team a Competitive Advantage. Newly published, by the way, by Maxwell Leadership. And you can get more information online by going to growingleaders.com. Dr. Elmore, I'm curious. You know, oftentimes the complaint we hear is, well, these these kids, they don't care. They're sloppy in their appearance. They're sloppy uh, when they show up to work. They come in, they work all night long, they leave pizza grease all over everything. They just don't care. Is it that they don't care or just that we care differently? And if so, how do we get each side to talk to the other so that we can find more in which we have in commonality, number one, so we can push the organization forward, and how we can come to learn and appreciate the differing skill sets that each of these groups bring to the table to create more of a collaborative kind of atmosphere? Yeah, great, great question. Um, I do think you're right. It's just that they care differently and perhaps for different reasons. So I was raised just how you described. Have a good work ethic, Get be punctual, get there on time, get your work done. And that was in itself a value. Well, they would say, don't tell me what, tell me why. And once they learn the why, I have noticed the 20-somethings in our office are amazing workers once they figure out the why. But every leader in their life, Craig, up to this point just about, has been prescriptive. We prescribe every step of the way, all the what's, but not the why's. So here's some data that might be interesting for your listeners. When I surveyed respondents from all five generations that might be in a workplace today, and I asked the question, what do you want most from other generations when they interact with you? Well, you can imagine I got a whole bunch of answers from each one. But three answers came up in every single generation. Number one was humility. The young and the old said, when you approach me with humility, you're communicating, I realize I don't know all the answers. I'm willing to learn. I love that. The second one was respect. Now, that's not a new term. Thank you, Aretha Franklin. We've, we've, we've <laughs> known about respect for 50, 60 years now. But, but here's what I typically do as an older generation guy. I say to that young person, all right, I'll give you a chance, but you have to earn my respect. I have learned I need to begin with belief. And if I begin with Cam, who's 22 years old, with respect and belief, he reciprocates it. So humility, respect. The third one caught me by surprise. All five generations said, I'd love to be approached with curiosity. In other words, when you're curious, you're saying, I bet I could learn something from you. I'll probably pick up something. You'll probably have something to offer me. I want to know. So imagine a workplace or, for that matter, a family reunion at Christmas. There's humility, respect, and curiosity. I can only imagine it's going to get better. So that's how I often tend to talk to folks. And we all know intuitively that's right, but I don't know that we do that all the time. Yeah, and there is the challenge that we don't do it with curiosity. We do it oftentimes, yeah. I think, with disdain. We have a pre- yeah. preconceived idea, and people yeah. can read that. And I think it works both ways, whether you're talking about younger generations having a disdain for those in front of them or vice versa. Yeah, no doubt about it. In fact, I, I'll admit the baby boomer generation back in the 60s and 70s, we were wondering if these old dinosaurs were ever going to get out of the way. 
And then, of course, you know, now the boomers are in charge of everything, including government. And we've had our own flaws and our own failures. So I, I think we've all got to step back and get perspective. You know, something dawned on me the other day. I don't know if this is relevant or not. You tell me if it is. But when I think about even the political spectrum right now, on the one side, there's progressives. On the other side, there's a, cons- there's a conservative. I tend to be conservative. But you know what? The root word of both of those terms make a lot of sense. Progressive is taken from the word progress. Well, we all want to make progress. The root word for conservative is conserve. Well, we all want to conserve the timeless virtues and values that our grandparents taught us. What if we could conserve what's timeless, but then be timely in the way we approach the problems we have? I think we could really do something with our country. So I'm lobbying for let's harness the power of every generation and see what can happen. Absolutely. And and along the way, uh, before our, our time begins to, to uh, slip away on us here, walk us through, if you would, some of the ways in which we can begin to, to foster this sense of not only collaboration, but, but yeah. earning trust. I mean, you oftentimes hear about, well, we're, we're taking the entire team out on a trust exercise. Do yeah. things like yeah. that really work? Well, sometimes they do, but a lot of times they seem a little bit artificial to people. They go, I know what you're trying to do, you know, and so it kind of gets past them. Um, One practice we do at our office that I recommend in the book is called reverse mentoring. It's not my term. In fact, Jack Wells came up with it, you know, gosh, 30 some years ago. But reverse mentoring is when an older generation or a senior veteran in, in, on a team, meets up with a younger generation person, and they swap stories. You could always find common ground when you swap stories. But then the older clearly imparts some timeless sage wisdom to the young. Here's how to succeed in this place. But then they switch hats. And the young then is sought out by the old as a mentor for some superpower they bring to the table. Maybe it's how to monetize that app, like Tony taught the paint store way back in the day. Um, so reverse mentoring means I don't go in just to impart, but I also I also come to listen. And um, I'm telling you, this just makes a huge difference. I share a quick acronym that's just easy to remember. Um, you know how we use the term, here's the leg you have to stand on? So I take a leg, A-L-E-G. The letter A reminds me, I need to start by asking, not telling. I need to ask questions. And when I ask questions, they feel important and valued. The letter L is listen well. When I listen to someone, they feel heard. The letter E is empathize. When I empathize with someone after I've listened and, and heard them, they feel um, you know valued and, and, and understood. And then G is guide. But I've earned my right to guide them, not with the badge on my shirt, but with the relationship I've, I've, I've used to connect with them. And that's what I think, I'll just speak for me, that's what I have to keep reminding myself of every day. Yeah, they do seem like they lack work ethic and they don't seem to get it. They're scrolling on their phones during work hours. But if I connect with them at the heart level, if I seek connection rather than control, I get, I get influence. And that's what I think we need to pursue. 
Love it. Some great thoughts and, of course, a good um, sort of launching pad for these kinds of discussions within your organization. The book, again, is called A New Kind of Diversity, Making the Different Generations on Your Team a Competitive Advantage. Newly published by Maxwell Leadership. More information available by going online to either Tim's website at timelmore.com. That's timelmore.com or at growingleaders.com. Our thanks to Dr. Tim Elmore for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Let's talk about some battle lines being drawn that is comprised of entertainment, the Internet, Madison Avenue, social media, even institutionalized enemies of your beliefs and values. And it is a battle for the hearts and minds of your children. What can we do to be better prepared to wage or protect our children in the middle of this battle? Well, a look today at 30 ways, 30 days to strengthen your family. And uh, joining me tonight is the author of this new book, former vice president of the Heritage Foundation, also serves currently on the board of directors for Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk. And a new book out tonight, again, 30 ways in 30 days to strengthen your family, newly published by David C. Cook Publications. And Rebecca Hagelin, great to have you on the program. Hey, thank you. It's an honor for me to finally be on the air with you. Thank you. Well, you know, I think we as parents understand that there's a battle afoot here. Uh, The problem is really understanding how these battle lines are drawn, Rebecca, and I guess understanding, too, and you you make this differentiation very early on in your book, that we need to be able to, to divide in our mind the understanding that our battle here is not really with our children, though many parents would feel like that that's exactly who they're doing battle with. But in reality, the real battle here is with the culture, isn't it? Yep, that's exactly right. Um, You know, I wanted to provide a handbook for parents so they could face, um, you know, the world and trying to raise their children with character with some help. And one of the chapters in there is called Battle the Culture, Not Your Child. And what it encourages parents to do is just kind of sit back and reflect on the fact that, hey, it is adults that are designing the pornographic websites. Adults are designing the songs for 10-year-old girls. Adults are designing the raunchy music that so many children um, are being pummeled with. Your battle's not with your child. Your battle is frequently with adults who have a different worldview than you do. And they're vying for the dollars that today's youth spends. I mean, our children today are the most affluent children in the history of the world, and the fact that they, for the first time in many generations, um, have their own disposable income, and the marketers know that, and so they're after that share of the pie, and unfortunately, what they've learned how to do, there's also a chapter called Learn How Marketers Target Your Children, which is a study into um, how executives of a lot of these companies, MTV in particular, brag about not how they know what teenagers want, but they brag about how they've learned to manipulate the teenage mind. And so it's important for parents to understand this. Um, And then once parents read at least those couple chapters to sit down and go over them with their children, too, because then it becomes you and your child against the world. 
versus you against your child. And, you know, the and irony is really important for, for our parents when they raised us, of course, the environment, uh, the culture and times in which we lived was very different. Today, these battles and the battle lines are being drawn in, as you're suggesting, Rebecca, in a number of different uh, arenas. I mean, it's not just Madison Avenue and the disposable income that your children have access to and they're being viewed as all potential customers from uh, virtually the age of zero on up. But then, too, there are individuals out there that have a social engineering agenda that that uh, it really draws a battle line. And then outright exploitation, too. Yep, absolutely. I mean, in, in America, it used to be that the social institutions, by and large, came along beside parents and helped them. Um, today, you have a lot of educators, and certainly the NEA is is driving a wedge between parents and their children, telling parents they're not smart enough, that, you know, that they know better, uh, the teachers know better, that you don't really have any rights once your kids go in the schoolhouse door. And even the medical profession has changed a lot in the fact they used to help support parents raise children of character. I actually have a story in there about taking my daughter, who was 12 years old, for a sports physical. And the pediatrician, female pediatrician, actually, after she did the physical, asked me to leave the room because she said she needed to talk privately with my daughter. And I go through the story of how I said, "Uh, no, I will stay here for anything you have to say to my daughter. And the long to make a long story short, the point is that I did some research after that, and uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics is actually encouraging doctors to ask parents to leave the room so the doctors can talk to the children about sexual information. Um, And what the doctor was trying to share with my daughter is, hey, it's up to you to do what you feel. Um, Some people believe sex is, you know, only for marriage, but you get to decide that at 12 years old. Um, And so this is a book that really shows how the social institutions are um, undermining um, parents and families and what to do to fight back and how to do so joyfully, I might add. And, of course, that that is key, because at the end of the day, I think parents sometimes, you know, we're busy with careers and responsibilities that parents have to pay the mortgage and uh, pay tuition at school and and do all of that. And then on top of it, trying to raise a child um, in an environment that is God honoring with the kind of um, values that we'd like to see passed on to our sons and daughters. And sometimes I think parents grow weary in the middle of this battle and all of a sudden now there becomes confusion. It seems as if we're battling our child, not battling the culture. So how do we differentiate between the two? And most importantly, how can we engage our child in a, at a level in which we can really have not only effective communication, but also walk away with a sense that uh, they're getting what we're trying to say, even with the so-called, uh, uh, you know, uh, gender or, or uh, uh, age gap. We're visiting today with Rebecca Heglin. The book is called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. And when we come back, we're going to talk about an important key as we kind of go over some of the highlights of the book, including this notion that just like soldiers at war, We ourselves must commit to this battle on behalf of our children daily. Our conversation with Rebecca Hageling continues right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And as we're learning this afternoon from author Rebecca Hagelin, 
and the new book she's written called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. It's not the battlefield for the heart and mind of your child. It's the battlefields, plural, be it media, advertising, social engineering, uh, those that would literally um, uh, prey upon your children in the arena of sex trade, pedophilia, even the pressure that they receive from their peers, all comes together to conspire against the parent who is really trying in this day and age to uh, train up a child in the way that he or she should go and uh, have love and respect and uh, live to a set of, of moral codes or moral values that you and your faith have established for your son or daughter. And, of course, one of the issues at play here is that, as I mentioned before the break, Rebecca, parents can get weary and tired, but this um, this is much like a real war, isn't it, in that the soldiers need to commit and recommit to this on a daily basis if we're ever going to have any chance of winning. Yeah, I call it purposeful parenting. And you really do have to get up in your heart every day uh, committed to this battle. Because guess what? The pornographers don't start. The people who are teaching our children that they're just here by accident, you know, um, there's some advanced form of primordial ooze, they don't stop. The garbage on the television or the Internet doesn't stop. So what I did when I was a parent of three teenagers simultaneously, I started waking up with a simple prayer in my heart, which went something like this, and I've got it in the chapter on Commit to the Daily Battle. Dear Lord, please help me today, on this one day, to stand up for the principles that you've set for my family, to, to touch my children in some deep and meaningful way in their hearts so that I know that they know that I love them and I'm there for them and I have their backs. Just give me enough grace on this one day to be courageous and joyful, Lord. And and I can tell you, if you break it down day by day, you can do this and you can find great joy because when you share truth with your children, you help them determine between truth and lies great joy and freedom comes from that um you know one of the other things that's really important in this daily battle and i have a whole chapter on this too is you don't make your health a no zone it can't be no you can't do that no you can't do that no you can't do this you have to be able to help your children make alternative choices that are fun and enjoyable for them and again this is about finding joy in parenting um god's way and it's actually woven all throughout every chapter on the book about how to do that now, it could be argued, well, uh, Rebecca, here's the challenge. Uh, there are so many arenas, as we've suggested, that uh, parents are battling today. My goodness, how could I ever hope to inoculate them against everything that's out there? And I guess that's the difference between uh, teaching them item by item versus in equipping them with the ability to think on their own based on a set of moral guidelines and standards that would serve as the compass or the guidelines for them so that when they run into things that are not good and not healthy for them, be it the source of the Internet, television, social media, whatever, that they've got the capacity to be able to engage in some judgment call on their own. 
That's exactly right. I mean, the purpose of my book is not to tell parents to build walls around your children to protect them from the world. Number one, that's a bad idea. Number two, you can't do that. You do exactly what you just said. It's about developing in them an internal moral compass and showing them how to use it. Because your children are going out into the world every day. In just a few short years, they're going to be walking down that graduation aisle and out your door. And, you know, our children are not always going to make the right choices. But my husband and I determined they are going to know the difference between right and wrong. They're not going to live leave our house wondering what is right. And they're not going to leave our house believing in all the lies that the culture is trying to teach them. And it makes them stronger, and it uh, makes them really protecting them from a lot of the negative consequences that their peers are going to be suffering. Um, If you teach them these strong moral principles when they're young and do it every day. And, of course, that also takes some commitment on our behalf, doesn't it? I mean, it would be nice to say as a parent, well, here's this list of do's and don'ts that I've typed up. So just keep this in your back pocket. And whenever a question comes up, just refer to the list. I mean, it's, it's, it's more complicated than that, as we're suggesting. And I would imagine that in terms of helping them understand and, and create the ability to reason through and know the difference in the variety of ways in which they will be bombarded by all of these sources with the kind of tough choices that they have to make. And that, I guess, at the end of the day, Rebecca, comes simply through time and interaction with our kids. You you can't do this by remote, can you? No, you can't. I mean, you know, the world will try to tell you, oh, don't worry, it's about quality time versus quantity time. You know, it's actually both. I mean, God gave little babies to moms and dads for a reason. It's because we are supposed to hold them in our arms and in our hearts and teach them what is true and what is not true. And you can't do that in just a few minutes a day. Uh, You do it over a lifetime. You do it by creating family time. You know, I've got a chapter in there on that, and that's what it's called. And I use the word create very deliberately because you're not going to find extra family time. You have to create it in today's culture. Um, you have to learn how to have meaningful discussions with your children. And I provide some tips that work for others um, that are in the book as well. And uh, again, you know, when children are in a home where they know mom and dad are committed to them, where they understand, you know, where the boundaries are and what the foundation is, children study after study reveals they're happier, they're healthier emotionally, um, they're less likely to be involved in drugs or sexual activity outside of marriage. It's just a thousand and one reasons why you should be engaged in purposeful parenting and, and starting afresh and anew tonight if, if you've not done that before. And going back to my notion that a, a simple list of do's and don'ts is not going to cut it, is modeling important here so that as the child watches you make the decisions and go through just day-to-day household life and what it means to be a parent and the child is watching you is it important that you're you're modeling consistency in terms of setting the example Yes, it's always important. I've actually got chapters there about helping to teach your children how to to make good friendships. And uh, part of that includes, why don't you, mom and dad, take a few minutes to examine your own friendships? Um, Your children are watching the friends you choose. 
Um, there's information there. You know, a lot of people worry about their kids dealing with peer pressure. Well, there are a lot of moms and dads that don't deal too well with peer pressure ourselves. And um, so there's information there, kind of look like a little workbook at the end of each chapter to help parents kind of get their own house in order and realize uh, that they do have to set that a good example. And your children are really, they're dying for you to do that. They're just waiting for you to step up to the plate and really practice what we preach. And, um, and, and again, a lot of joy comes from when you do that and live that way. And Rebecca, I would imagine they're probably watching a lot closer than we would suspect. In other words, the inconsistency of saying to a child, uh, it's not okay to steal gum, uh, you know, walking through the uh, the five and dime store. Does it even exist anymore? <laughs> it's not okay to steal gum. So you're, you're trying to instill in your child the notion that it's not okay to steal. And then for your child to overhear a conversation between you and your spouse about how you've underreported, uh, you know, some side income from your income taxes, they're, they're going to catch on to those things, aren't they? Oh, they're totally going to catch on to those things. And, you know, when you tell your child, if you get a phone call and you say, tell them I'm not here, and you think, oh, that's just a little white lie, a lie is a lie. And your children are learning from you. And they know that, oh, mom and dad tell me it's wrong to lie, but they lie to their friends. So it really starts with examining, you know, your own heart and home and and mom and dad sitting down and and realizing, you know what, if we've made mistakes, it's okay. We're going to start over. One of of the things I find um, that's so sad is parents of teenagers, oftentimes they'll hear me speak and they'll think beginning, oh, it's too late. I've done it all wrong. And my, my answer to that is as long as there is breath in you, it was, there's always a chance to repair and restore and make stronger a relationship in your life. And along with that, um, our kids are looking for heroes. In a day and an age when there are so many anti-heroes out there, wouldn't it be nice whether you're starting when, you know, the kids are, are six days old, six years, or, you know, they're in your 60s and you're in your 80s, to be able to to have a son or a daughter say, mom was my hero, dad is my hero? Oh, my goodness. It's so important. Um, and again, I have another chapter on that because today hero is confused with sports star, right? Oh, yes. Or movie <laughs> yeah. star or recording star. And it's very important to teach our children what makes a real hero and what a hero is so that they can learn to do heroic things in their own life. You know, a hero is, is most often described as somebody who makes sacrifices on behalf of another. And uh, we need to teach our children that and find heroes in your own family to start with. Maybe you had a, a you know, a great grandfather or grandfather who who has served in World War II, or you know, or maybe you have a friend whose son is a soldier in Afghanistan or something. Look for heroes close to home. Um, to, and tell their stories to your children and show them as role models, you know, rather than that latest basketball star who's in trouble again um, for the way he's treated his girlfriend or something. Um, very important for our kids to understand that. Yeah, and, and helping them to understand the difference, as Rebecca points out. Uh, newsflash for a lot of kids and parents out there. 
Kim Kardashian's not a hero. Kanye West is not a hero. But there are plenty of heroes out there, and you can start to uh, influence your child in a big way to become a hero in their eyes as well, no matter when you start. And I think that's an encouraging message that Rebecca Hagelin has shared with us today. And the book is called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. And what's great about the book is it's it's pretty interactive, and uh, a lot of the uh, sort of the backside wall of these uh, insights uh, are followed up on by Rebecca's daughter. And so you get a chance to kind of see the parental perspective, child's perspective, what all that means and how that dialogue, how that interaction, how that quality time can come about. The book again, 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. It's author, our guest on this edition of Lifeline, Rebecca Hegland. Rebecca, thanks so much for your time today. The book, by the way, published by David Cook, available in bookstores throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. You'll find it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com, as as well as on Rebecca's website, theresurgent.com. That's theresurgent.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.